morning, I'm Doug Davey. Welcome to Subject ACT on Tuesday the 14th of June. Today on Subject ACT, we talk with Gay Brotman, member of the Australian House of Representatives for the seat of Canberra, about Australia's duty in ISIS's war on women. Later in the program, we present Gay Brotman's lunchtime lecture, Australia's duty in ISIS's war on women, hosted by the Blue Star Intercultural Centre at the Canberra Museum and Gallery Theatre. Stay tuned for more on 2XXFM 98.3 People Powered Radio. Gay Brotman is a member of the Australian House of Representatives for the seat of Canberra and represents the Australian Labor Party and is the Shadow Minister for Defence. Prior to becoming a member, she also worked as a public servant at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and she was part of a delegation to normalise relations in Iran, Iraq, Jordan and the Middle East. Gay Brodman has maintained an interest for women in peace and conflict since becoming the member for Canberra. Last Friday, I spoke with Gay Brodman after she presented the luncheon lecture, Australia's Duty in ISIS's War on Women. Gay, welcome to Subject ACT. My pleasure. Gay, today you spoke about women and the impact of ISIS on women and Australia's part in resolving those conflicts. What are some of the major issues? Well, I think that the real the concerning fact is that over time, the atrocities against women in war have become industrialised, but ISIS has taken it to a whole new level. In the speech today, I spoke about the fact that they were burning women for propaganda purposes, the fact that they've got a pamphlet out basically guiding their jihadists on how they treat women as sex slaves and there's guidelines. The fact that they've actually developed a pamphlet with guidelines on how to treat a woman as a sex slave, just it's horrifying. It just horrifies me. The fact that they treat women, they basically see women as being subhuman horrifies me. So today in the speech I highlighted the atrocities that ISIS is still to this day uh, unleashing against women in the region, against Yazidis, the supposed non-believers, but also the fact that in a way our Australia's response to getting engaged in conflict is guided by our values. Yes. And one of those values is very much the need for the well, respect for women and gender equality. Living in a democratic society, we are fighting very strongly for gender equality. This whole ISIS way that it pushes women down must really go against your grain. Well, it's horrifying to think that I think about those women. You know, they could be my sisters. They could be my my friends, my uh, my girlfriends, my my children, my mother, my grandmother. Uh, It's just horrifying to think that uh, these women are having to go through these these hideous experiences. I spoke today about a woman who had uh, 13 captors and was endlessly raped. Uh, so it's to think that women are enduring that in the world in you know in 2016. Uh, just just um, it really it, it's horrifying, and I think any Australian would find it horrifying. Which is why we need to do what we can to eliminate the scourge that is. ISIS, that despicable organisation that is ISIS. We have values. We have values in terms of decency, values in terms of democracy, values in terms of gender equality. That's what guides us in terms of our involvement in conflict. Now, while ISIS looks very much an issue that is affecting overseas, mm. how does it impact in Australia? Well, we've seen, I mean, there, are, there, we, there is a potential sort of threat for it to mm. sort of mm. th- to come here. Yeah. Um, there's derivative organisations actually happening in the region, and we've had our own situation situations here in terms of particularly these lone wolves and there's there's young people who are going off to to Syria to take part in this fight. Uh, So 
it is, it, it's a concern, it's a concern for every nation across the world. We need to do our part in terms of addressing it and trying to eliminate it because should they win, I hate to think what could happen uh, to the world. That's why it's so important for mm. us to stand up as a nation to make a voice, to make a change. Gay, thank you very much. Thank you. And I wish you all the best with your campaign. Yeah, and thank you for coming today. It's Jason Hinder, MLA, said it's important for Australians to understand that Muslims and Islam do not support the disgraceful things of ISIS. I think it's important that Australians understand, that Anglo-centric Australians understand, that Muslims don't support ISIS, that Islam doesn't advocate the sort of disgraceful things that happen where ISIS is involved. The Blue Star Intercultural Centre was established by a group of young Australian Muslims in 2009 to promote peace, awareness and harmony in the Australian Capital Territory. Blue Star Intercultural Centre spokesman Mohammed Asku said the centre focuses on interfaith and intercultural dialogue and the luncheon lecture focuses on an important and controversial topic. Blue Star welcomes everyone who has a desire to explore the other in the spirit of mutual respect and tolerance. The mission is to foster interfaith and intercultural dialogue, to stimulate thinking and exchange of opinions on supporting and fostering democracy and peace all over the world, and to provide a common platform for education and information exchange. To this end, Blue Star promotes education, exchange of information, opinions and knowledge, with a special focus on including as diverse a range of viewpoints as possible in our activities. Our modest contribution to this universal aim consists of conferences, seminars, panel discussions, scholarships, publications, meetings and trips. Last Friday, Gay Brotman, member of the Australian House of Representatives for the seat of Canberra, presented the lunchtime lecture Australia's Duty in ISIS's War on Women, hosted by the Blue Star Intercultural Centre at the Canberra Museum and Gallery Theatre. Gay Brotman said that, that ISIS presents a threat to the things we cherish and the things we do. Uh, today I will be talking about Australia's role in the war on ISIS. Now, by now, you would be hard-pressed to find anybody in the English-speaking world who has not heard of the group ISIS. We are all too familiar with its deeds. Just this year, we've witnessed deadly terror attacks in Brussels, which claimed that 32 civilian lives have injured hundreds, the murderous rampage of an ISIS-inspired gunman who killed 18 people at a nursing home in Yemen, and a series of suicide bombings in Istanbul, which claimed at least 15 innocent lives. These acts are a spectacular punctuation to a daily drumbeat of violence in Iraq and Syria. But there is a third front in Narcissus' war, and its fight is against the West, and its fight is against the Muslim world. But its third fight is against female empowerment and all that it allows. In taking on this fight, ISIS declares, war, declares its war with modernity. Women are its chosen battlefield. Now, as we know, sexual violence is not a new thing. The Book of Lamentations recounts that women have been ravished in Zion and the virgins in the towns of Judah. And during the 15th and 16th centuries throughout much of the world, the right to commit acts of sexual violence against the objects of one's conquest was considered a form of earned compensation. The Second World War showed us a level of human tragedy that we've never seen. It was in this context that the character of sexual violence in conflict was altered, because then it was mechanised. To use one example, it is estimated that the Soviet army raped anywhere between 1 to 2 million women in Eastern Europe and Germany during 1945. In one year, one army, 1 million women. 
And today, the nature of sexual violence in war is changing again. Today, it is less an act of private compensation as, as it is an act of terrorism. ISIS is using sexual violence as a weapon of war, as an orchestrated, coordinated, industrialised state of terror, tactic of terror. It is a horrifying evolution of an age-old practice, and it is now the means to a very different end. ISIS has a clear goal. It opposes many of the outcomes produced by female empowerment. It is opposed to access to education, to freedom of association, to freedom of religion, to freedom of movement, to freedom of speech. It is a totalitarian force that reserves its greatest oppression for women. Now, the 2015 ISIS Manifesto, Women in the Islamic State Manifesto and Case Study, advises that the role of women is, quoting to, here, to, to remain hidden and veiled. The manifesto declares that women gain nothing from the idea of their equality with men apart from thorns, and that they should focus on their divine duty of motherhood. The same manifesto states that it is legitimate for a girl to be married at the age of nine, and that women should not get degrees. According to ISIS, women should only leave their homes in exceptional circumstances such as committing jihad. It is this worldview that ISIS seeks to impose. It is the ends to which the means is directed. Now, the United Nations estimates that ISIS has forced some 1,500 women, teenage girls and boys into sexual slavery, but anecdotal evidence suggests that the true figure is far greater. The UN Envoy of Sexual Violence and Conflict found that girls from Iraq and Syria were made to engage in the most unspeakable acts of sexual violence. ISIS's just, justification for these acts, as outlined in its pamphlet on female, is, has a pamphlet, I'm sure many of you have heard about this, its pamphlet on female captives and slaves, is that it is permissible to capture and to have sexual intercourse with unbelieving women. Now, once captured, these unbelieving women can be bought and sold as they are merely property which can be disposed of. One so-called unbelieving woman is Nadia Murad. Nadia was 19 when her Yazidi village in northern Iraq was captured by ISIS. Deemed non-believers by ISIS, Nadia watched alongside her mother and sisters as her brothers and the rest of her the men in the village were brutally slaughtered. For the next eight months, Nadia was abused and raped by ISIS troops. She was held in captivity by 13 different owners. Now, thankfully, Nadia managed to escape and was smuggled out of Iraq. But in Nadia and in ISIS's manifesto, we have means and we have ends. We know their goals, we know their actions, but it is critical we recognise the direct link between the two. A UN Special Envoy report from 2015 told the story of one girl who was killed for refusing to perform an extreme sexual act. Now, if the point of my mentioning this was to prove that ISIS is despicable, we would leave this anecdote there. But the story is instructive, so we must not look away. This young girl, this woman, uh, was not shot or stabbed or met with any other quick and violent death. Rather, her captors chose it to burn her alive. Her death in this public moment stopped being punishment and started becoming propaganda. Now, this form of execution, public, deliberate and slow, is only useful if there are others to witness it. 
This was not a random killing, this is a plan. Two years ago, ISIS fighters in Mosul forced 19 Yazidi Christian women into cages. Hundreds of witnesses huddled together as one fighter announced their crime, refusing to accept their punishment for being devil worshippers, which was to be taken as sex slaves. One by one, torch took to kindling, prepared at the base of the cage, and each of those 19 women was burned alive. Now, the spectacle was not successful because these women are now dead. Rather, it was a success in ISIS's eyes because it drew a crowd and it sent a message. The UN report found ISIS is using such atrocities to advance key strategic priorities such as recruitment and fundraising to enforce discipline and order through the punishment of dissenters or family members and to advance their radical ideology. Now, the earliest genesis of this strategy may be the Bosnian War, and here we can draw an historical through line. Here, war rape occurred as a matter of official orders. It was a tool in the goal of ethnic cleansing to displace the targeted ethnic group out of the region. Rape camps were deliberately established. The reported aim of these camps was to impregnate the Muslim and Croatian women held captive. Now, this occurred in the context of a patrilineal society in which children inherit their father's ethnicity, hence the rape camps aim to the birth of a new generation of Serb children. Thank you for listening to Subject ACT, and I'm Doug Doving. You are listening to Gay Brodman, member of the Australian House of Representatives to the seat of Canberra, talking about Australia's duty in ISIS's war on women. After nearly 15 years, iconic Australian band Midnight Oil has recently announced they will reunite in 2017 with tours in Australia and overseas. Midnight Oil frontman, former ALP Minister Peter Garrett, also declared that he is back and has announced an Australian tour in support of his first solo album, A Version of Now. Coinciding with his tour announcement, Peter Garrett has released a new track, Great White Shark. We are now playing Peter Garrett's Great White Shark from his solo album, A Version of Now. The great white shark has got no feelings He may end up a bargain on a fashion plate The dolphin is different, intentional, innocent Place that the camera sings in the sea
world's got a counterpunch No such thing as a free lunch Don't fence me in, we need our freedom Teeth and claw, natural greetings XFM 98.3 as Gay Brodman, member of the Australian House of Representatives for the seat of Canberra, talks more about Australia's duty in ISIS's war on women. Now, Bosnia gave us the genesis of rape as a tactic to terrorise the civilian population with the hope of reshaping the region. ISIS has taken this tactic to its terrifying conclusion. So, what do we do about it? Now, I've asked myself the question, and, and along with that question, is there ever a just war? And it's an important question. And I think that to justifiably commit one's resources to a conflict, the commitment must be based on some general principles. One, the threat posed by the opposing force should be direct. For this to be the case, the opposition needs to be both intent on delivering us harm and capable of its intent. Two, victory must be as easily recognisable as defeat. We must be capable of establishing a mission and delivering that mission. And three, victory must be attainable. If the cause is hopeless, then the war is lost before it begins. Now, for Australia to have a role in ISIS's war on women, the war must satisfy those three criteria. And I believe it does, and I believe our response to it does, and I believe we do. First, ISIS's war extends beyond Iraq and Syria. Its opponent is modernity, and its myriad expressions, including those for women's rights and freedoms as enjoyed throughout Australian society. ISIS serves as a unifying barrier banner for a worldview rather than an organised, coordinating body in the way we normally think of national armies. It's not this non-state actor who's sort of unified by this particular banner of a particular worldview. And as a result, the threat it poses grows stronger, left unchecked. Victory begets victory. Its inspiration for low norms affected by the call to arms and radicalised by the extremist propaganda coming out of the organisation's sophisticated public relations machine presents a risk that does not recognise national borders. Similarly, ISIS's use of sexual violence to terrorise local communities has created an unprecedented, has assisted in creating, there's many factors in the refugee crisis, uh, which has led 
to a startling resurgence of far-right politics in much of Europe. Uh, and we do not, do not presume we are invulnerable to such pressures here. Second, what does victory against ISIS look like? And to answer the question, ask yourself, what does ISIS's failure look like? To me, its failure looks like girls going to school every day, growing up to be doctors and scientists and soldiers and artists and engineers and even politicians, enjoying the freedom to imagine any future and the opportunities to pursue it. ISIS's failure looks like a functional state and a stable environment. It looks like a strong justice system and institutions capable of protecting its citizens. It looks a lot like what we have in Australia and not at all what we've got in uh, parts of that region at the moment, the, uh, parts of the Middle East region at the moment. Three, is there hope for achieving victory? I say yes. Australia's limited engagement in Iraq has thus far played a key role in winding back the progress of ISIS. Iraqi forces are soon expected to attempt to retake Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, which has been under ISIS control since 2014. Iraqi forces are currently laying siege to ISIS bastion in Fallujah, 50 kilometres west of Baghdad. So hope is not lost, and ISIS, thankfully, is not invincible. Now, there are many who believe that Australia should not involve itself in the war that wars of others, and I agree, but I do not believe this to be, to be the case here. I do not believe this is a civil war in the way we think of civil wars. This is a war on an ideal we hold dear. We should not fool ourselves into thinking there is a distant conflict being waged in which we have no stake. Of course, there are many different justifications for Australia's role in the fight against ISIS, as there were for Afghanistan, and I was a strong supporter of our uh, involvement in Afghanistan, uh, particularly having been to Afghanistan uh, during um, in 2011 and seeing the great work that we were doing, the great work the international community was doing in getting young girls and young women educated. When before we were there, it was zero. Uh, we were after, you know, as a result of the draw, since the drawdown, uh, we've got um, a million girls being educated. So, and that's just that alone. We've got uh, women's health centres now, so that women uh, are not dying in childbirth. We've got uh, trades, young men being trained, uh, trained up in trades, so they can re rebuild their community. All of that did not exist um, under the Taliban. So as I said, of course, there are different uh, justifications for Australia's role in the fight against ISIS, as it was as for Afghanistan and other conflicts. Um, each are keenly held and of considerable, considerable merit. Now, defence of a principle is about one justification amongst many, and for me, it is an important one, but it is that it, it's many. Both within Australia and in the broader international community, um, we lend support for other reasons. They are not wrong any more than I am right. Whichever reasons you prefer, we recognise that there are reasons. And it's important recognition because it is not important on its own. Even if there is some reason to engage, such as a recognition does such a recognition does not constitute a blank check to engage in any way possible. It's possible to do wrong when trying to do right. If we are not strict in our determination of how and when and where and for how long, we may make things worse. My argument is not that we should commit wholly and fully, it is more philosophical that we should somehow not have we should. Any response would need to be proportionate to the threat, as I mentioned. Afghanistan, we had a particular response, and Iraq had a different response, and it needs to be designed to maximise its effectiveness. It's important to recognise Australia's principles in this space are not mere rhetoric, they are a matter of public record. Now, in October of 2000, the UN Security Council held a debate on women, peace and security, which resulted in the passing 
uh, Security <coughs> Council Resolution 1325 on October 31st, and uh, Lisa is an expert on this. Now, the move was historic for many reasons. Uh, it enshrined in international law a recognition of the effect of conflict on women, and it underscored the important role that women must play in a successful resolution to conflict. Now, Australia has made repeated statements of support for this resolution. In one such statement from um, 2003, we proclaimed to the international community, Australia stands ready to do its part. It is true that the resolution is not perfect. I mean, the 1325 predates 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Ukraine, Sudan, the Arab Spring and the emergence of Boko Haram, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It predates the violation and torture of women and children through rape and prostitution and sexual slavery by non-state actors. And it predates the establishment of a special representative to the Secretary General on Sexual Violence in Conflict. Now, last year's review of the resolution recognised as much, but the updated resolution reaffirms a solemn commitment to the original document's guiding principles. That UNSC 1325 was a document of its time, but the principles it sought to defend are timeless. Indeed, the relevance of those principles to today's conflict with ISIS is timely. Now, I just want to, um, I'm coming to an end now, but uh, we have this argument around that, um, that essentially we've got poverty, we've got disease, we've got oppression in the world. It's at a scale far beyond um, all of us can address. Um, so are we able to address it? And I argue that that is, um, that is true. Yet we find ourselves um, with a compelling interest in doing something, in acting um, somehow. We either do it unilaterally, um, we do it at a local level, at a national level, at a regional level, uh, internationally like we have done in Afghanistan and like we're doing in Iraq. Uh, we can do it bilaterally, we can do it multilaterally, we can do it through the prism um, of the, and under the umbrella of the UN. I, I think it's important um, to see that we can actually, yes there is poverty, there is disease, there is this um, this tragedy of, of refugees and uh, around in, in the Middle East, I mean, what is it, one and a half million of them, George? Um, we've got oppression. But I think that uh, we do, um, despite the fact that it is it can be overwhelming, I think we do need to do, play our part as a decent international citizen, as a modern nation, and as a nation that has um, it, that has particular views on, on, on strong principles and particular views on the, the role of women. Um, our, what, how we respond to what's actually happening in the world uh, speaks to our identity and challenges us to reconcile our vision of ourselves with our deeds, what we ought to do and what we do. Now, it's, there's not always a perfect overlap. This is not evidence that our deeds are justifiable. This is simply to say that we must try harder. So I argue, let's focus on the identities of those who help and do not help. Let us instead continue, consider which uh, principles we seek to defend. And like charity, in a way, um, defend them at the point at which they are most keenly required. As any, everyone knows in this room, I am a believer, a strong believer in the principle of gender equality. I believe there is nowhere this is more a threat than the cold face of ISIS's war on women. We know the ambition is to reverse centuries of progress for the rights of women. It is not a secret that ISIS believes women should be second-class citizens, subservient to men in all ways, without rights or without protections under the law. It is not a secret that ISIS seeks to cast women outside the universal net of human rights, to recast women as something less than human. It is plain that there is much at stake here, and I began this speech with a reminder that there are few corners of the earth not aware, not yet aware, 
of the acts and ambitions of the terror group known as ISIS. Many are watching the exploits of this extremist group, most are outraged. A small number are emboldened. Some just wait and see. Now, if ISIS is successful in redefining what it means to be a woman in the Islamic world, it is all to all of our, de de our detriment. We have a real stake in the outcome of this war. Equality is a principle we hold dear. It's not a talking point, it's not, it is a solemn proclamation. And when you hold something dear, you refuse to part with it. When it is under threat, you fight to defend it. And it is on this point I conclude. What we do as a country should reflect what we value. If ISIS presents a threat to the things we cherish, we have an obligation to defend them, not because of who they are, because of who we are. Thank you. That was Gay Broadman, member of the Australian House of Representatives for the seat of Canberra, speaking at the luncheon lecture hosted by Blue Star Intercultural Centre at the Canberra Museum and Gallery Theatre. It is important to remember that Muslims and Islam do not support ISIS. The Blue Star Intercultural Centre was established by a group of young Australian Muslims in 2009 to promote peace, awareness and harmony in the Australian Capital Territory. Blue Star Intercultural Centre focuses on interfaith and intercultural dialogue and the luncheon lecture focuses on an important and controversial topic. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 on Subject ACT with Carolina, Patrick and Jeff for more current affairs and news. Coming up next on 2XX at 9 o'clock is Radio Landcare. Stay tuned for more on 2XX FM 98.3 People Powered Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Dobing on Subject ACT. Have a great day.